We are moving on. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is continuing to work the theme that he brought up in verse 20 of chapter 5, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that sounded terrifying at first, but now that we've lived with it for a while, begin to understand it, uh, we're coping better. So we could say that this week is um, surpassing righteousness part two. Last week he gave us six examples of what that surpassing righteousness looks like. Uh, And I think I'd rather say superior righteousness because it's not that we have to do more of what the Pharisees were doing, but we have to do it differently. And uh, those six examples taught us that it's about being true to the deeper level of the law, allowing it to work in a deeper level of ourselves, and that we do not contradict our actions by what we hold in our hearts. So um, we don't hold murder in our hearts while we congratulate ourselves for not killing anyone. We don't hold adultery, uh, yeah, adultery or lust in our hearts while we congratulate ourselves for not committing adultery and so on. Now we have, in chapter 6, three negative examples. What is not superior righteousness? And um, again, righteousness is relational. It's doing the right thing in terms of our relationship to someone. And, uh, and here this moves in, in different directions. But Jesus is telling us what to avoid when we perform good deeds. So he begins with the word beware. Now, for for most of us, I am guessing that beware, when we think of that word, what most often comes to mind is beware of dog. And I want you to know that if I see that posted somewhere, that's a sign I don't ignore. I'm not going to go through that gate unannounced or uninvited uh, especially if I hear sound, like animal sounds on the other side of the gate. It's like, well, maybe they're not just faking it. Maybe there really is something deadly back there. Um, so here is someone who cares about us, who is giving us a warning of a real danger. And I, and I hope that we can see it that way. I hope that when Jesus says this, we can hear the, the quiet growling of an ill-tempered Doberman. And, and though if I ignore this, this warning, I'm going to get bit pretty bad. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Who knew that this could be a problem? All throughout Scripture, God is pushing his people toward righteousness. Live in right relationships. 
um, fulfill the obligation that each relationship entails. You know, some obligations are greater given the relationship, and some are are lightened given the relationship or lack thereof. Um, but be faithful in these relationships. And what goes between us in, in personal relationships is righteousness. On a social level is justice. And it's, it's basically the same thing, always doing what's right. Now, there's no question that we do this. I'm assuming that as Christians, there's no question that we practice our righteousness. The danger is that we could lose whatever value there is in practicing righteousness, in, in doing both our spiritual exercises and disciplines, and also in doing good in the world. That there is value in, in prayer and fasting. Jesus says, oh, but only if it's done right, and that value can, can go away, that the good can be drained from our good deeds. So what's the wrong way of practicing righteousness? And what he says is to be noticed by others. To have this specific intent in mind. To have others see what a great person I am. And that I really should be nominated for the next position that opens as saint. Um, or martyr, you know, do you see how much I suffer being married to this man? You know, it's like, oh, I'm, uh, I'm on the martyr list. <clears throat> Jesus is saying, don't perform those acts of righteousness in order to be noticed. And this really is the monkey wrench in the machinery of our righteousness. This is the flaw in the foundation it's weakness that can cause the whole building to come down. Thinking about this, um, we need to clear up a problem. Because uh, remember, back in chapter 5 somewhere, Jesus said, let your light so shine that men might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He says, well, let them be seen. Let, let, let all the good things you've done be seen because you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And now he says, don't do this so that you're seen by men. Well, okay, we can just conclude that Jesus contradicts himself and we don't pay any attention to him. <laughs> or, the difference is whether it is the good that gets noticed or me for doing the good. And it's really pretty simple when you think about it. Let your light so shine that men see your good works. Not so that they see you doing good works and admire you, but they see the good that's done and they affirm that it's good. They appreciate that someone is introducing into our world goodness rather than violence. The point isn't whether people see us performing good works, the point is whether that's our motive to make sure that they see us. Because I'm not going to give to this homeless person unless someone sees me doing it, a photo's taken, and I'm in the paper as, you know, person of the week. Um, that will make it worthwhile. 
or I'm not going to make this donation unless my name is on a plaque somewhere. Um, now, I read this, and my first thought is, I've done that. I have played to the audience. I have done things, and either at the time or maybe, maybe later on, thought, well, I hope someone finds out about this. You know, because I have every reason for thinking I'm a bad person, and I figure I'm giving everyone else a good reason for thinking I'm a bad person, and I'd like for someone to see in me something that's contrary to that view of me. So I sure hope someone hears about this good thing that I've done. And, and uh, I feel caught. Um, you know, Jesus at this point, like mom, could look at me and say, Charles, I see guilt written all over your face. <laughs> and um, I can try to change my expression, but it's still going to be there. Helmut Thielke said, we ourselves can, without knowing it, fall into a disastrous contradiction with ourselves. I love the way he uses contradiction in this context because this is what it is. I am supposed to be one thing and I'm something else at the same time and they contradict each other. Now we saw that the contradiction of Jesus' words is not a real contradiction. This is a real contradiction. When I do something ostensibly for the good of it, when what I want is my my own good. So that's my first thought, is I've done this. My second thought is, um, but where's the danger in others seeing how good I am? Where's the danger in that? Why shouldn't they know how much I give? How eloquently I pray? You know, obviously, you know, I must pray a lot to pray this beautifully. Um, how many souls I've saved? You know, who does that hurt if they know how many I've baptized in the last year? It sets a good example for others, a good example of holiness and righteousness, you know, the kind of life you want to live. I, I become a model for them. Um, and uh, what's the danger in that? Jesus explains, you will have no reward with your Father in heaven. And notice that he doesn't say, which we would expect, you will get no reward from your father, from your father. He says you'll have no reward with your father. And in a sense, that is the reward. That you share something with God, something that is native to both of you, that is, comes from your nature, compassion, empathy, Um, even interaction with God, communication with each other, that he enjoys communicating with me and I enjoy communicating with him. Practicing righteousness is a participation with God and with his work in the world. So the reward of all the good that is done is a reward we have with God. It's, it's that heavenly reward of doing good. Something that he himself knows, obviously. Now, last week, in last week's scripture, we saw for the first time in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' reference to God as your Father who is in heaven. And it occurred twice, in verse 16 and 45, I believe. 
And now again, your Father in heaven, and we'll come to it again and again and again throughout the Sermon on the Mount, at least another 10 or 12 times. Your Father who is in heaven. I worked with a guy in an electronic factory one time who uh, was also a Christian, and, and uh, because our work was boring and tedious. Actually, his was challenging, but he knew something about electronics. Um, I did the, the, the monkey labor. Uh, but because my work was boring and tedious and he was thoughtful, we were in this conversation about God. And he says, you know, I really don't relate to God as father. Because my father deserted my mom and I before I was born. And I really don't have a good idea of what a father is. For Jesus to, to refer to God as your Father who is in heaven gives us a certain way of thinking about God. And we have to explore, explore that just a little bit. Um, we can see that the Father is a person uh, in that culture, a person that's respected, but also um, a person we're related to and who has taken responsibility for our lives. So if he asks for our obedience, he also provides for all our needs. And those needs include whatever instruction we need to get along in life. Now, you know, some dads get stuck in that mode and all they ever do is instruct. They never listen to us. Um, I'm wondering what Monroe's complaint is today because um, I've heard that same voice and that same statement so many times. You made me mess up on my video game. What? I just walked in the room. You know, I don't have that kind of power. Uh, or if I do, I'm going to use it for different things than this. <laughs> um, he is person. He, we are related to him. He provides for us. And so, especially he's heavenly. He's our heavenly father. He's not like our earthly biological and stepfathers. He's infinitely superior to them. Even the Best fathers are poor comparisons. That's really important that we get this, especially if any of us have grown up with fear of our dads, anger towards our dads, uh, cut off from our dads. When I pray, Father in heaven, I never miss the beat that, I'm, that this is not my dad. And... and um, Though characteristics of my heavenly father may have come to me through my dad, I choose my heavenly father. Um, and I choose to talk to him. And I have, since long before my dad died, I choose to talk to him over talking to my earthly dad. I know he'll be more understanding. Uh, he knows me better. He's interested in, in me. And my, he doesn't say, well, you know, Chuck wasn't on the cutting edge so much. He could have a church as big as Greg Laurie's. 
Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, God never says that. He, he never says, why aren't you more like Joel Olstein? And I said, you've got to be kidding. Um, I'm sorry. I really am. I'm sorry. Okay, so, um, thank you. Don't tell anybody, though, okay? I mean, tell them that you love me. That's fine. You have to. <laughs> oh, stop. Um, but uh, this verse enlightens us to the danger. And now we come to the first example. And Jesus presents it to us in, this, in the form of a miniature story, a, a vignette. So we can easily picture what he's talking about, though we've never seen it in real life. The, the figures come together and make it really understandable. Verse 2. So, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. That's it. You've got the whole deal right there. Any possible good that could come to you in any form you have right now, that's the sum total of it. There won't be anything else. It won't be remembered before God's throne. It won't be you know, um, celebrated musicals and, and uh, legends, uh, you have your reward. There it is. The first example has to do when we give to the poor. And few examples could be more relevant to our situation today than this. Because, as Jim said, of the hurricanes and the earthquake and the shootings, there's so much dire need in the world today. Can you imagine being two weeks without clean water, without drinking water? I mean, people die after seven days if they're not hydrated. Um, can you imagine your, your home, where your home stood, it's now mud that you slosh around in. And you still get rains in the afternoons. Can you, well, I mean, okay, so we, we know that there's this great demand for charity, for, uh, for rescuers, for responders, and, you know, for uh, relief missions. Just in, in our country and territories alone, the need and opportunities for charity are ample. So when you write out that check or when you commit to go on that short-term mission or whatever it is in response to this great need, this really applies. God always kept Israel's attention on the widows, the orphans, and the strangers. These, besides the slaves, were the most vulnerable classes of Hebrew society. And most societies in the ancient world. Women did not have jobs in those days. There was one job that was open to them, and not everyone was willing to take that job or qualified for it. So women who were widowed usually um, had no 
income, no means of supporting themselves. Children were vulnerable. They, they were treated more like, um, like possessions, just maybe a little bit above the livestock, but their lives were fragile and the mortality rate from infancy to young adult was very, very high. And then strangers, I mean, you know, to this present day, people will take advantage of strangers. Uh, it's happened to me in other countries a lot. So, so God has, has always told his people, take care of the weak and the vulnerable. Watch out for them. It's your res- I'm giving you the responsibility of meeting their needs, those who, who can't meet them for themselves. This has also been ingrained in Christian consciousness, that Christians know to do this, that we have this system of balance where the strong support the weak, the wise instruct um, the simple, that the healthy care for the sick, and the wealthy uh, sustain the poor. James, in chapter 1, says, Religion that is pure and undefiled is this, to care for the widows and the orphans in their distress, to recognize their distress and to do something about it. Now, now all of these are relative states. In other words, um, a person who may be poor in some ways is rich in other ways. Um, or... I may say, oh, you know, we're so poor, we're living paycheck to paycheck, but then I meet someone who has no paycheck and has no home, and I say, okay, then, then it goes this way. Sometimes it comes to me, sometimes it goes from me. It's, it's relative. Um, the only exceptions would be disabled people who have overcome their disabilities and are perfectly happy to be independent and to to not always have their hand out. And all of us are impressed with that, and all of us ask ourselves, if they with their disability can do that, how come I'm not doing more? The other exceptions would be the professional beggar and televangelist. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, you know, the professional beggar can always look you know, like they really need this, and the sign says so, I really need this. Um, uh, but again, they're pros, and they know how to tug on the heartstrings. There's a Buddhist exercise. I'm not saying I want you to all become Buddhist, all right? <laughs> this is clear the air of that one. But there is this Buddhist exercise in compassion, and the whole idea is to develop compassion towards others. It's known as tonglen. And it's a, a meditation in which one takes in the suffering of another and sends out love. Uh, so it, it just goes on within a, one person in meditation. Take in, I, th- and I think of suffering in particular, someone who lost a daughter in Las Vegas a week ago. Um, I take in their suffering and I send love. Now, there was a chaplain who was taught this technique. And one day she was called on to rush to the emergency room where 
two children, siblings, brother, two siblings, had been in a drowning accident and doctors were doing CPR to try to resuscitate them and it was obvious it was not going to work. This chaplain says that when she entered the room, she saw the young mother bent over and sobbing from the depths of her being. And she says, I felt overwhelmed, of course. And, and while she's wondering what she could do, she says, then I remembered the giving and receiving. So I breathed in the suffering as if it were a dark cloud and breathed out golden light from my heart into the room. Now, of course, that's not a sufficient response to the need. But what it did, she says, is prepared her to speak to the mother in compassion and wisdom and to be able to be of value to her in that critical hour of her life. And so that's what this is about. This can prepare a person's heart to respond sufficiently. Action will need to be taken, but what's the right action in this moment? What are the best words to speak? And it's so easy to fall back on cliches. I'm so sorry for your loss. Not, not, you know, it, it used to be other things. They're in a better place. In order to not be overwhelmed, so overwhelmed by what you see that you're immobilized, but to be able to still open your heart to the other and to feel what the other feels. The writer of Hebrews says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. And, and I love that last little statement, in the body. You're in a human body. You know what it feels like. You can imagine what it must feel like. Remember that, that you're embodied also in all the, the bad things that can happen to your body are happening to these others in, in these ways. And when he says remember, I'm sure he, he includes remember them in prayer. But also remember them in prayer and thought so that you're able to discern if you're, gonna, if you're supposed to go visit one of them or write to one of them or whatever. Um, okay, I, I've given you a context and I hope that you can appreciate what I'm going to do now. I mentioned Rilke last week, uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, and uh, you know, that his poetry can be dense and uh, require a lot of reflection, but I want to read you one of his poems that has to do with th this very thing, this, this breathing in the hurts of others, breathing out something that's going to be helpful to them. Oh, you lovers that are so gentle, step occasionally into the breath of the sufferers not meant for you. Let it be parted by your cheeks. It will tremble, joined again behind you. You have been chosen. You are sound and whole. You are like the very first beat of the heart. You are the bow that shoots the arrows and also their targets. 
In tears, your smile would glow forever. Do not be afraid to suffer. Give the heaviness back to the weight of the earth. Mountains are heavy. Seas are heavy. Even those trees you planted as children become too heavy long ago. You couldn't carry them now. But you can carry the winds and the open spaces. Jesus says, do not sound a trumpet. It's doubtful that anyone actually did this. Um, until recently, trumpets were used to sound alarms. And I mean, you know, fairly recently, even uh, in the 20th century. Now, uh, sirens are the electrical, mechanical trumpets that are sounded. And what is he saying? What does this mean? Obviously, he's saying, don't draw attention to yourself or to your actions, as the hypocrites do, the phonies. The Greek word is used of stage actors. And the word is well chosen. Um, because he's describing people who take the stage. And like actors are always looking for an audience. Who will see me do this? How is getting attention for doing good, I mean, intentionally getting attention for doing good, hypocrisy? How does it fit that? Well, this person is not loving the poor and the needy for their sake. Rather, this person is loving the poor and needy for his own or her own benefit. They're creating an image of being a compassionate person, but it's only an image, an illusion. And the goal is to gain honor for themselves. This is a photo op. This is a spin. What's the right way to practice charity? But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. My left hand doesn't usually know anyway. Um, could you explain that, please? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I assume most of us have heard this particular phrase, that we're familiar with it. It's a very picturesque figure of speech, isn't it? Um, and it's actually an exaggeration. This is hyper, hyper, hyperbole. And why would Jesus exaggerate? Um, well, to make a point. John Pennington says, uh, or he emphasizes, that a literal interpretation of this saying would lead to countless impossibilities and absurdities, and that giving in secret does not require cash-only gifts rather than checks used for tracking tax-deductible giving, or that when helping a homeless person, the helper must wear a ski mask lest he or she be recognized. Um, no, don't approach a homeless person with a ski mask on. Um, in the next verse, Jesus will be more literal than don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But for now, the, the figure is strong enough that you can't really avoid it. Um, you know, it's like someone telling you, don't think about a yellow elephant. Sorry. Sorry. 
<laughs> um, just give it a name and tell it to go home. Uh, and, and he's saying, as far as anyone else is concerned, we keep secret our act of charity. As far as God is concerned, he sees what's in secret. I mean, he sees especially what's in the human heart. Oh, and I, I can't remember the name of that Jim Carrey movie where he, his whole life has lived in this dome created by Ed Harris. Um, Truman Show, thank you so much. Um, and I love it because it's such a beautiful depiction of post-modernity, these constructed realities. And um, he finally catches on to the truth, and Ed Harris tries to talk him out of leaving um, this perfect environment he's created for him. And um, he says, I've watched you your whole life from your birth. And, and with tears in his eyes, he, he says, I, we, the whole nation has watched this part of your life and that part of your life. And Truman looks up into the camera and he says, you were never inside my head. You never had a camera inside my head. You never knew who I really, you were looking at the outside, you never saw the inside. Only God sees the inside. And so Jesus says, that's all you have to be concerned with. No one else knows that you perform this act of kindness. No one else needs to know. Your Father in heaven knows, and he will reward you. Now, this is where the kingdom of heaven is. It's in secret. Um, and this is where it does its work. The kingdom of heaven is present, but it's secret. Remember Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who hid a bit of leaven in her bread dough and the whole lump rose as a result. I said that more awkwardly than Jesus did, but hey, you know, he's Jesus. Um, but that little leaven hidden in the dough the word hidden is the same Greek word, secret. The kingdom of heaven is this secret, this, this secret dimension, this, this hidden place. He uses it again in the parable where he talks about a treasure that's hid in a field. It's a cognate of the same Greek word. So we learn something about the nature of the kingdom of heaven here. We, we, we get a hint, and Jesus clarifies more later on. You'll receive a reward. Um, the Pharisees were just going after the wrong, re oh, pardon me, hypocrites. It doesn't say they're Pharisees. The hypocrites are just going after the wrong reward. But there is a reward. Now, is that all right? I mean, Jesus does not appear to be teaching altruism. Um, instead, uh, he says there's a reward for doing good. Shouldn't doing good be its own reward? Reward is hardwired into our brains. We were created by God this way. It's always there in everything we do. We are always seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. We're asking, will this bring reward or punishment? And sometimes it will bring temporary reward and long-term punishment. Um, I ask myself, will this work to my favor or be hurtful to me? If I work hard at my job, what will I get for it? What happens to those who slack off? 
Do they get promotions? Could I slack off and also get promotions? This is always in our thinking. We can't remove it from our thinking. We can't remove this from our calculations. It's a, it's a part of being human, of being alive and having a will. And Jesus does not tell us to drop the ulterior motives. He just tells us not to let them be ulterior anymore, to explore our motives, to bring them out into the open, to weigh our options, and then go for the best reward. Which reward is eternal? Which which reward is going to be short-lived? And which is eternal? Which reward comes from God? Which reward comes only from those around me? Only those who see this. And you know, you have enemies who can see the best deed you ever performed in your life and give it an ugly twist. It happens every day. So, so this. Do you know what's missing from this passage when we read it? Jesus' tone of voice. If he were one of those southern Bible thumpers, the tone of voice would probably be very different from what I imagine. As Jesus speaks these words to us, he is giving us the attention that we crave. Why, why do I want people to see my good works? I want them to think well of me. I want to be liked. I want some attention. You know, I love the fact that there are times when I can discern that one of my grandchildren needs attention. That one of my grandchildren will come to me and engage a conversation, whether I have time for it or not, whether I have patience for it or not, will engage me in conversation, not because there's something important they have to tell me or there's some question I have to answer or something I have to do for them. They just want to connect. And I love when I discern those moments because I make myself available then. We all want tension and love. Sometimes we'll manipulate things so that we're needed. Because we'll, we'll take need if we can't get love for who we are. If we heard Jesus' tone of voice, we would hear him giving us, when he says, beware of these dangers. Why would you say this to me, Lord? Because you're important to me, because you're special, because I love you, and I I don't want to see anything bad happen to you. I don't want to see you suffer any kind of loss, especially like this. He knows that we need the attention that we're fishing for when we sound the trumpet before we write the check. And I think that his, his tone of voice is gentle and loving, and that we can hear how much He values us and our good works, our practice of righteousness. And that he doesn't want it to go wrong or be wasted. It's too important to him. We are too important to him. Does it matter 
if my second grader granddaughter brings home a picture from school that she colored that looks like a second grader colored it, it doesn't matter at all. It's a work of art. It's a masterpiece. It deserves to be hung in the finest galleries in America. But since we don't have access to them, it will go on the fridge. <laughs> um, you understand what I'm saying right now because you have those needs too. And Jesus is speaking to your needs right now. And he's telling you that he loves you. And some of us deflect it because no one's ever loved me like this. No one's ever loved my soul. And it wasn't until Jesus loved it that I even knew I had one. What we hear in his voice is the reason that we're drawn to Jesus. We trust his diagnosis, his counsel, his cure. Because we hear in his voice everything we need to hear that tells us we can believe him. And that is why we are going to do our best this week to keep our acts of charity between us, the person we help, and God. Would you stand, please? May the Lord bless us Keep away all evil and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.